0: And we turn our attention back to Isaiah. And we're going to look at the prophecies that are found in Isaiah 31 and Isaiah 32. The 30th chapter of Isaiah, as you remember, is a picture of the problem that the nation of Judah is not putting their trust in God to save them from the Assyrian invasion. Chapter 30 is recorded that they have decided they will put their trust in Egypt and chapter 30 said, Egypt is nothing and I'm going to put you to shame for doing something like that. And so here is God with this problem, if you will. And the question is simply, what is God going to do with these people? The nation does not trust Him. The nation is not putting their faith in Him. They are turning outward to other alliances. They're turning to Egypt and looking for Egypt to be their Savior and Deliverer in this time of crisis. What will God's message be for these people who should be putting their lives in God's hands? That's where we're at in chapters 31 and 32. What is God going to say to these people who refuse to trust in Him? So let's notice, let's start with the first three verses of chapter 31. Chapter 31 of Isaiah, verse 1. "'Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help "'and rely on horses, who trust in chariots "'because they are many, "'and in horsemen because they are very strong, "'but do not look to the Holy One of Israel "'or consult the Lord. "'And yet He is wise and brings disaster. "'He does not call back His words, "'but will arise against the house of the evildoers "'and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. "'The Egyptians are man and not God.' and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the Helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fail, and they will all perish together. Interesting beginning is what you have pictured is really the woes continuing. It backs up beautifully back into chapter 30. The woes continue and I think verse 3 is the strongest image of what God is trying to tell them. You're acting like Egypt is God. You're acting like they're the ones that can save you from this calamity. You think that's going to be a helper to you? Do you think Egypt is going to be the nation to save you? They are not a God at all. You have turned your hope and your trust and your faith into the wrong place, such that he says there in verse 3, the helper will stumble. You think Egypt is going to be your helper? Oh no. And the help, that's you, Judah, you're going to fail, you're going to fall as well. It's going to be your doom because you've decided to rely on outward nations rather than putting your trust into verse 3. They will all perish together. Egypt will fall, Judah will fall. It didn't have to be that way. And what we're learning from God is saying is when you do not put your trust in God, you're relying on nothing. You think you're relying on something, but you're really relying on nothing. You think that it's going to be a help. You think it's going to be your foundation, your salvation, your deliverance. It seems like it's going to be there for you to help. And God says, it's not going to work out for you. It's a false God. It's an empty God. It is not going to give you the hope that you think it's going to give. I think if we took a poll, we'd all raise our hand and say, how we've experienced it. Usually we've all experienced it with wealth. Just when you think you have something to rely upon, it's not there anymore. It always seems to go. Just when you think you're getting a little bit ahead, you're starting to save up just a little bit, you start getting a little bit of foundation, I'm doing okay. That's when the car breaks. That's when the place floods. That's when things go wrong. You think that's going to be yourself Salvation, God says it will not. And we do that with so many things. We try to put our trust in so many different areas that are not going to deliver. And we describe it as uh, this is going to make me whole. This is going to give me my satisfaction. This is going to make me complete. And whatever it is that we are filling in the blank with that we think is going to be the answer, that is going to be the help, this is going to be the thing that I need, if that blank isn't God, you've got it wrong. And that's what he's telling them here. You've got it wrong. You think Egypt will save? It's of no help at all. And because you didn't rely on God, you are going to fall as well. You are going to be crushed by these things. I want to rec- want us to recognize why God is so insulted by this, when we don't turn to Him, when we don't rely upon Him in crisis, disaster, good times, bad times. because what we have to admit, what we have to realize is what we are declaring to God is that He is insufficient. That's the message that Judah is communicating. God, we don't believe that you are sufficient to deal with this crisis. Assyria is the world power. Assyria is attacking. And so rather than believing that God will help us and save us, you are insufficient and we need outside help. And that's what we're saying to God when we do the same thing, when we start relying upon our wealth, we rely upon our jobs, we rely upon family, relationships, possessions, whatever it is that we think is so important, so valuable, so needed, it's going to save us and give us what we need. He says, here's the problem. What you're saying is God is insufficient. What you're saying is God is not what you need to get through this life. And so that's why he starts with this in verse 1, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. This is God's condemnation when we turn to anything else, anyone else, except God for our help. Now, what would you suppose that God is going to do because of this? Listen to what he says he's going to do. Verse 4, For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he has not terrified by he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill, like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by the sword, not of man, a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers de- desert the standard in panic. De- declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace Is in Jerusalem. You surprised at the response? God says, woe to you because you don't trust me. How dare you put your trust in other gods? How dare you turn your back on me and rely upon them? You are going to fall for that. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to save you from your idolatry. That's what I'm going to do. That's an amazing response. I expect verse 4 to begin, so I'm going to light you up on fire. I'm going to burn you across the countryside. And there's not going to be anything left of you but charred ash. That's what I would expect God to do right there. Notice the loving compassion of God. He says, you don't trust me. You've failed in your faith. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to defend Jerusalem. That's what I'm going to do. Even though you don't believe that I'm going to do it, I'm still going to accomplish what I said I'd do. Even if you don't believe it, I'll carry out my purposes. Even if you don't believe it, I'll carry out my plans. And notice the picture in verse 8, really neat there. Assyria will fall by the sword, but you're not going to do it. Not by man. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take care of the problem. You don't believe that I can accomplish great things? He says, fine, watch. I'm going to send to Syria so that there's nothing left of them, and it won't be your doing, it will be my doing. It will not be by the hand of any human. God is going to accomplish this. Most likely, I think, still referring to when the angel of the Lord takes on 185,000 Assyrians. I think that's probably what this is looking out to and saying, I am going to defend Jerusalem, even though the city would be surrounded shortly. Here's God saying, I will protect, I will defend, I will accomplish my purposes, even though we can be so faithless. You know, we're going to get to that line in Second in Timothy chapter 2. We're almost there at the end of that chapter where if we are faithless, God is still faithful. That's <laughs> so important. And that's what's being exemplified right here. The people are completely faithless, trustless in God, but here is God saying, I'll be faithful. I'll still keep my word. I'll still keep my promises. I will defend Jerusalem, not because of anything that you have done, but for my own sake, I will accomplish these things. And that's what leads us now uh, into chapter 32, as he has pictured some hope to come. Notice he gives just a hint of it in verse 7 of chapter 31. In that day, everyone will cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. There is going to be something that's going to happen. God is going to cause a massive change so that his people are going to throw away idolatry. And they'll stop trusting in other things. They'll stop trusting in wealth. They'll stop trusting in anything else that is not the true and living God. He says there's going to be a day that's going to happen. And now watch the picture unfold as what this looks like. Let's read the first eight verses of chapter 32. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable, for the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity to practice ungodliness to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry, unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the the plea of the needy is right. And he he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Notice this picture that Isaiah now gives. And he describes now a righteous king in verse 1. And what he's doing is describing this new kingdom or new administration that is going to reign. Now he's going to come and a new king will reign in righteousness. And this administration is going to be amazing because, number one, he describes it as being protected. Did you notice there from verse 2 all the different ways that he describes? this protection each will be like a hiding place from the wind you're going to be part of this kingdom and this king and his princes they are going to protect you you are going to be secure you're going to be safe as if you, it was a hiding place protecting you from the wind. As if, verse 2, it is a shelter from the storm. So you have this picture of there's going to a king, king who's going to come. And you're going to have amazing protection. And not only will you have protection, you're also going to have beautiful provisions in verse 2. Like streams of water in a dry place. Shade of a great rock. In a weary land. So here is God picturing I'm going to bless my people. I'm going to give them provisions. I'm going to give them protection. And what's going to happen is when God does that, the inhabitants of the kingdom are going to be transformed. Did you see that in verse 3 through 5? Verse 3, the eyes are going to be opened, they're no longer going to be closed. The ears are going to hear now and give attention. The heart is going to understand and know. The tongue is going to speak distinctly. Here is this picture of massive change is going to happen. I'm going to come and I'm going to be a safe place is what God is describing. I'm going to be their protection. I'm going to be their rich blessings. I'm going to give them the provisions that they need. It's going to be like streams of water in a dry place, like a great rock giving shade in the middle of the desert. And when i I do those things, I'm going to have a people whose now eyes will be opened. Their tongues will speak now in righteousness. They're going to hear the ways of God. Their heart is going to be radically transformed. It's going to be a whole new system, a whole new kingdom with a whole new people such that you see in verse five. The fool's not going to be called noble. And he goes on and gives this whole picture through verse 8. That which is wicked will be understood to be wicked. And I think you could sum up those verses to say the people now are going to pay attention to the ways of God. And they're going to act responsibly in faith. They're going to recognize what is right and wrong and they're going to cast off their idols and they're going to seek the ways of God. They're going to hear what God has to say and they're going to understand what God wants them to do and they're going to do it. That's what His people are going to do. And so a righteous king is coming, bringing in a new kingdom, and the inhabitants of that kingdom are going to be very different. And what you see Israel doing right now, a nation that is lacking faith in God's deliverance, a new people will rise up who will have their faith in God. That is what Isaiah begins to picture. But as he shifts now from the king, he now describes what this new society is going to look like. First eight verses, here's the administration that this righteous king will rule. And now he's going to describe here's how this is going to all look. But notice how he words this. Let's read it from from verse 9 all the way to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 32, verse 9. "'Rise up, you women who are at ease. Hear my voice, you complacent daughters. Give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women, for the great harvest fails.'" The fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever a joy for wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks until the spirit is poured out upon us from on high and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness and righteousness abide in the fruitful field and the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Neat imagery here that he pulls out. Notice what he does in this picture of what's going to happen now. And notice from verse 9 to verse 14, it is bad news. Destruction, devastation, it is over for you. He is calling upon them over and over again to cry, to shudder, to wail. It is going to be your doom. So that is our backdrop is you didn't trust in God and you should have. And so you're going to pay the consequences for that. Judgment is going to fall upon you. Assyria is going to come and he's going to devastate all that land. It is going to be devastating what Assyria is going to accomplish. And so he's calling out for them, like in verse 11, to wail and mourn, tie sackcloth around your waist and beat your breasts. This is the cry of people in the midst of mourning and wailing and massive devastation that is all around them. Verse 14, palace forsaken, the cities are deserted, the hills and the watchtowers are now a, a, not a place for humans but a place for animals. It is empty and ruined. What he's trying to get them to see is essentially your hope is lost. And I think it's important for us to understand what God is saying right here. When God speaks like this to his people, it is not just simply saying, well, that's a shame you're not going to have grapes anymore. And you know that really neat watchtower over there, you know, Jackals and donkeys are going to live there and things like that. That's not really the key point of it all. When these things are described, it is a reflection. That they're not in a relationship with God anymore. That there is a severing that has occurred. That God was with you, and that's why you were blessed. That's why you had the fruitful fields. That's why you had this beautiful picture of everything is going well. When you're in the days of Solomon, you get this strange line over and over again. Uh, everybody sat under his own vine and fig tree, and you you know, were people really sitting under a fig tree every day? And that's not a literal. Idea it is a picture of God is blessing his people And the nation is at peace Notice that that's Now been reversed Now they're to weep and wail. Devastation is coming. They need to cry out because now the cities are ruined. The watchtowers are empty. The palace is forsaken. It is a total upheaval because God has severed Himself from His people because they did not trust Him. And we get that mainly from Deuteronomy. Remember what Moses told the people over and over again. He warned them in his own final sermon to them and said, you're going to disobey. And when you disobey, certain." consequences are going to happen to you, you are going to be judged you are going to be booted off the land and you are going to pay a penalty for that and what that is signifying to you is the abandonment of the covenant look at it like here in Deuteronomy 28 and verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses confusion and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on the account of your evil deeds why? Because you have forsaken me. Listen to the severing. This is all happening because you've left me. You've forsaken me. The relationship is broken because you've turned your back on me and you've gone away from me. That's why these things are happening. So, the curses are going to come. Confusion will come. And it is a picture of... Separation from God. Chapter 29, verse 24. All the nations are going to say, why has the Lord done this to the land? Everybody in the world is going to wonder now, why has God done this to the nation of Israel? Why has this happened to them? What caused the heat of His great anger? Then the people will say, it is because they abandoned the covenant of the Lord, the God of their fathers, which He made with them when He brought them out of the land of Egypt. You see what Moses is telling them? When all that falls upon you, you're supposed to know something. You've forsaken the Lord. You've abandoned the covenant. You've been separated from God because you have walked away from Him. And so that was the message over and over again. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 as the curses are pronounced. When Israel disobeys, it is a significant message to Israel that you are separated from God. In our Wednesday night class, we talked about it, but I'll bring it up here as well. Remember the great vision of Ezekiel because that's really important. What did it mean for Ezekiel to see a vision of God leaving the Holy of Holies in his throne and going out to a mountain? It didn't mean that God wanted a new location. It wanted a better view of Jerusalem. It meant God's not with his people anymore. And that meant the doors were wide open for Babylon to come in and destroy the city. God has left you, destruction and judgment falls. That's what Isaiah's prophesied. The populous cities are now abandoned, the palaces forsaken, the watchtowers are empty. Why? Because you've turned your back on God and so God is going to allow you to be judged the relationship is broken you've abandoned the covenant this is all severed so that's the, the important message of picture is the Lord then severing blessings and severing relationship because of sins but here's the key to the story verse 15 first word until neat word right here until It's broken, it's severed, it's over. Weep and wail, it's all going to be ripped away from you until the Spirit is poured out upon us from on high. And I want us to capture a number of things about what we see, particularly we're going to look at verses 15 to 18. Just zero in right there for the rest of our time tonight to get a feel of this. I want us to notice, first of all, it is interesting, the imagery that's used. The Spirit is going to be poured out. Why does He use a pouring kind of image? And I think this is important, because the first thing that we should gather from this is what God is going to do in the future, this until, you're going to be in ruins until, is to recognize that there is something amazing that God is going to accomplish with His blessings. There's going to be a reversal that takes place and it's not God picturing Himself and saying, until I sprinkle a couple blessings from on high or dribble out a few or drizzle a few things... The imagery of pouring out is the idea of a flood. It is just gushing. It is overflowing. God says you are going to be separated. Things are going to be desolate until there is this overwhelming pouring out that is going to take place. And what you notice is from verse 15 to verse 18, it is an image over and over again of reversals. Notice it. Verse 15, the wilderness will become the fruitful field. Now go back a few verses there and you'll notice that's the opposite that's happened. They're going to lose their, verse 12, lose their pleasant fields and fruitful vine and soil. It's all going to turn into thorns and briars, verse 13. Verse 14, the hills are all becoming dens forever. The cities are deserted. And so you have this picture that the cities are turned into a pasture for flocks Into verse 14. So you have this imagery of desert, wilderness, Emptiness, desolation, you have nothing but listen to the reversal. Until the Spirit's poured out, then that wilderness, desert, is going to be a fruitful field. Reversal. And that fruitful field will not be some small field. It's going to be like a forest. Massive reversal is going to happen. Verse 16, justice is now going to dwell in the wilderness righteousness abide in the fruitful field the effect of righteousness will be peace result of righteousness quietness trust forever my people will abide in a peaceful habitation notice this massive reversal from under attack and desolate to hey god is going to come back and reverse all of your woes and reverse all of your fortunes to put it this way I think works. You're going to be swimming in blessings. That's the idea. I'm just pouring out blessings upon you. You're just going to be gushing with blessings. God is going to reverse everything of how He had to judge you before because of your sins until the Spirit is poured out. then the great reversal where God is going to bless you and bless you and bless you. and you're going to see it in that you will no longer be considered a wilderness but a fruitful field and a forest. Now I think another important question to ask is why does he say this is the Spirit doing this? Why use that image? Why not just say and God's going to bless you? (laughs) No, there you go, that'd be simple. Wouldn't have to do all this interpretation right here. And God will bless you until God blesses you. There you go. Obviously not only do you have Beautiful imagery that God likes to use Of you're going to be desolate And now you're going to be fruitful when the spirit comes But consider how the spirit is Particularly used by the Old Testament Prophets as a representation Of life Ezekiel 37 is one of my favorites You probably know it pretty well What does Ezekiel see? Dry bones. What happens when the spirit's put in them? They come to life Nation revived. Nation restored. They were dead. Their hope was lost. They are shattered and broken. It is a parched wilderness. But what happens when God puts His Spirit out? The nation comes back to life. That's the imagery there. Life comes back. So that's why you use spirit imagery is to draw upon life here. And so I want us to see that there's nothing here that pictures something outside of the idea of God just blessing his people. That's all that's being laid out here. There's not anything personal to an individual. It is just simply saying when the Spirit is poured out, notice the massive reversal that is going to occur. And verse 17 shows us that we are on the right track because what is this, the, the outcome of this poured out of the Spirit? Eternal peace. There's a picture of this dwelling that is stable in righteousness, quietness. Trust. So you see the picture that, that's being drawn here to tell them, look, I'm going to be with you again. You're going to be restored to peace. You're going to lose it now in this judgment This As Assyria now is going to bang down the door and they're going to come all the way up to Jerusalem itself. But I will defend Jerusalem, God says, but I'm not going to turn Assyria away. If you had trusted me, Assyria would have never walked in through the door. But here's what I'm going to do for you out of my own goodness and graciousness. I will defend Jerusalem, but more importantly, I will reverse your fortunes in the future. One day I will have a people who will get rid of their idols, who will not trust in the things of the world. They will put their trust in me, and that will be a key because that means they will be the ones who receive God's blessings and will be part of a covenant relationship with Him. And I want you to then consider... Why that fits so beautifully with why the book of Acts starts the way it does. This image, which Isaiah is going to teach us a few times as we move through Isaiah, we're going to see this image a couple of times. And we're going to see some of the other prophets pictured as well. You know, Joel uses it as well, and Peter quotes him. This image of restoration, of pouring out of the Spirit, of renewal, of returning back to God. This is the great hope of the nation. They are the dry bones in the wilderness waiting for God to come and breathe life back into the nation. And I submit to you, that is exactly what the apostles are asking as the book of Acts opens. Lord, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? When is this restoration going to happen? This is what the prophets promised. I think we've done a horrible thing to read that question and go, well, that's an improper question. That's what the prophets said were going to happen. We just read it. The kingdom is going to be restored. We just read all this is going to come back. It was formerly a wilderness and the watchtowers are broken down and the palace is forsaken. But when the Spirit is poured out, massive reversal is going to happen. Lord, when is that going to happen? We know You're the Messiah. We know You're the one to bring these blessings. When is it going to occur? And we know that's the connection because of the way Jesus answers the question. Jesus says, I'm not going to give you, you know, May 17th, something like that. It's not for you the times or seasons. I'm not going to mark on a calendar. Okay, here here you go. Here's the day. Here's how you'll know. Here's how you will know the answer to your question about the restoration of Israel. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses. Judea, Mary, the ends of the earth his answer. Now I want you to see Jesus does the same connection that Isaiah makes. They ask about restoring the nation to blessings. God says, I'll pour out my spirit. That's what the Lord says. What does Isaiah say? When the spirit is poured out, Restoration of the nation. Restoration of the kingdom. So Jesus and Isaiah are on the same page, talking about the exact same thing. And I want you to consider why that is so useful and so important to the picture here. When the Holy Spirit arrives, this was to symbolize to the people that the great reversal has occurred. Now God is going to bless His people again. Now they can be in covenant relationship with God again. Now they can belong to this great new kingdom that would be... Established again. All of this is going to return. Life into the dead bones of Ezekiel 37. The nation will rise up again. That's what they are hoping for, and that's why Acts 2 is so powerful because when Acts 2 comes, what do we see happening? The Holy Spirit's poured out on the apostles, right? And what does Peter and the apostles preach? Repent and be baptized. Why? One, forgiveness of sins. You want to have a relationship with God again? You can. Didn't exist before. Wasn't possible before. You've been cut off. You've been severed. Now the Spirit's been poured out. Now life can come back to the nation again. How? Well, that's what John the Baptist is running around telling them: Repent the kingdom is at hand. It's time to get your life right with God. Time to get your heart right with God. Time to be prepared because the Messiah has come and He is now bringing the good tidings of this kingdom. That means you can be restored. And so here is Peter standing up and saying, Repent, be baptized, one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And as we said Wednesday night, there's not a period there. He keeps going, and what? You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's He talking about? This... Right here. Restoration into God's covenant. Restoration of God's blessings. Restored into His kingdom. All that had been severed. Is now returning to those who will come to Him. And that's why Acts 10 is so powerful. Because in Acts 10 happens to the Gentiles. What's the message? They can belong to the kingdom. They can belong to the covenant. They can receive the blessings. Just like the Jews can. Remember that's why Peter has his jaw on the ground Wow, we can forbid water That this has just happened They get to belong too. We get to chapter 11 The Jewish Christians call Peter on the carpet For what he'd done Because they knew what that meant What's Peter's response? It was I to forbid water What did that Holy Spirit symbolism mean? You can be part of the covenant. You can be part of the blessings. You can be in a relationship. You can have all of these things that God has promised from Isaiah on about restoration, restoration, restoration. And that's why 3,000 souls are excitedly receiving the Word of God in Acts chapter 2 and why multitudes upon multitudes are coming to the Lord page after page in the book of Acts. And then the Gentiles are coming in and there's this excitement as everybody can now be restored to God this is what Isaiah is promising would happen when the spirit is poured out on high all right so what does this mean for us what does this do for us two things I want to settle on with you number one back in verse 2 what a picture he pictures a righteous king who will become a hiding place to his people Jesus is supposed to be our shelter. He's supposed to be our shade. He's supposed to be the streams of living water to our lives. He is to be our refreshment and satisfaction. We are to rely upon Him alone. He is where we turn. That was the failure of Israel. They did not look to God for life. They did not look to God for deliverance. They did not look to God for satisfaction. And therefore, God said, you've abandoned the covenant. Do not abandon the covenant that God has made with you. Turn to Him as your resting place, your hiding place, your protection, your refreshment, your joy, your satisfaction, your life, your love is bound in Christ. Otherwise, we've abandoned the covenant. That's what Israel had done. They said, you're not that to us. He said, fine, and I'll hand you over to the nations. That is one of our great hopes is to see Jesus as our joy, as our satisfaction and to put our life in his hands, our rest and our refuge for life. And number two, what a picture of what these residents of this new administration will do. A picture that seems to foreshadow the message that the Apostle Paul would make about the fruit of the spirit. We saw it here in Isaiah 32 in verse 16. Actually, verse 17. Here's the effect of what God was going to do as He reigns in righteousness. Notice verse 17. Peace and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust or security forever. That's what the Apostle Paul said where he said to us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Consider those final words. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When I turn to Christ as my refuge, my rest, my shade, my thirst, my desire, my hope, my trust, when He becomes that to my life, then the fruit of the Spirit will develop in our lives. We are not to walk into the fruit of the Spirit. This would be whenever I do Galatians. I'm dying to preach Galatians. There's too many books in the Bible I want to preach through. I'm trying. When we ever do Galatians. But the, the point of this was not to read, okay, Christian, you need to now love and you need to jo- have joy and you need to have peace. And so do it. Have patience. Do it. Be kind. The fruit of the Spirit. This is how you know you've put your trust in Christ. This is how you know that you are relying upon him. This is how you know your satisfaction is in him. Because there is fruit that comes from it that can be seen. And it is joy and love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's how you know. That's how you know. And that's what Isaiah said. There's an effect to his righteousness. There's an effect to being a part of this great new administration of the righteous king. If you will turn your life to Jesus and trust Him as the King and hand your life over to Him, there's an effect that happens to your life. And it can be seen and the fruit is evident to all. And that's why Paul wrote those words. Point your song books out. Sing invitation song. We invite you to come to Jesus Christ. We invite you to put your hope in Him. To see Him as the one you trust completely. Do not rely on the things of the world. They are empty promises. They do not satisfy. They are not there for you in your time of need. They are not gods. Do not treat them as gods. There is one God. Put your trust in Him. He's made great and precious promises that if you will put your trust in Him, if you will rely upon Him with all of your heart, if you will seek Him as the ultimate thing to your life, if you will have Christ as the center of your life, great promise of... Hey, I'll take away your sins. You can belong to my kingdom. I'll bless you with the great blessings of this glorious covenant. You'll have eternal life. All of the first three chapters of Ephesians we can talk about. So many blessings that God is pouring out richly from the heavenly places. Give your life to Jesus. Won't you come down while we stand while we sing?